So this one's going to be the third talk that I'm doing on the power of telling Yeshua's stories, the stories from God's word, uh, word of mouth, orally. And I wanted to share with you guys something that really impacted me this, this last week, actually. I, I, I encountered a book here. Um, it's called Shall We Tell the President uh, by Jeffrey Archer. And it, second to the Bible, this is probably the best book I've ever read. Like, it totally floored me. Um, the main character, Jeffrey, like, it just, oh, I learned so much from this book. Um, it has some pretty, pretty stunning, um, like, uh, little recommendations, too. Like, Vogue says, Here is terror, outrageous and top-notch. Uh, Cosmopolitan says, authentic, literate, and scary. Um, um, what are some other good ones in here? Washington Post is a storyteller in the class and style of Alexandra Dumas. So I, I, uh, this, this book impacted me so much. It changed my life so much that I actually want you guys to read it this, this week. I want you to read it so that we can talk about it and, and learn it. So I'm going to begin sharing some of this, this um, book with you guys so that you can, you can learn it. And I think it's going to change your life too. So um, here, here's some of the book for, for you guys here. And I'd like you to just, just read that. And we'll, re- we'll read some of the story today, and we'll discuss it. And then um, I'll give you some more chunks and snippets in the next couple, uh, couple years, every Saturday. Here, I'll, was, this, was that not enough pieces? Here, I'll... Uh, I'll give you, I'll get you guys some more pieces just to make sure that just to make sure you get the get the storyline here. So here's Thanks. no problem, no problem. So so there you go. Thank you. No, yeah, no problem. So yeah. So anyway, just I I really think that you guys are going to be excited about this. This is gonna this is gonna change your life just like it changed my life. So if you guys wouldn't mind, maybe can you just look at those those little those those little chunks for a bit and just tell me the story and maybe tell me what happened and. And why this story changed my life and inspired me so much? If you want, I could give you some more pages. Here's some more. Some for you, some for you, and um, some for you. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh man! I, I just have to tell you, um, my my friend Yvonne. Some of you probably know her. Um, she was in her Hebrew classes. I called her up because she lives close to us, and because she loves books just like I do. And I was like, Yvonne, I I need a novel that I can tear apart. Do you have any? She's like, Yeah, yeah, come over. So we walked over to her house today, and she had two. And there was this one. You can tell this is a very expensive and high quality book. And then she had another one that actually looked kind of nice. And I was like, I hate tearing books up. Books are like my babies, right? So I took the cheap one. So anyway, what, 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 what do you think you would call it, what I just did to you, to you guys? Destruction. Destruction? <laughs> Confusion? Confusion? <laughs> Giving you part of the story? Okay. Told you to do something that you can't do. But it would make it would make the community stronger because we try to piece everything together and share. Good luck. Yeah, it would make the community stronger, hey, because you'd have to piece it together and share. 
Basically, this is what I'm doing. I'm taking that novel, which is a story from beginning to end, and I'm, I'm taking it out of context, and then I'm expecting you guys to, to get it. I'm expecting you guys to be impacted the same way that I was when I read the story from beginning to end. And here's the thing. Just like that novel is a story from beginning to end, and you could say it's coherent. Would, would, would that make sense if I use the word coherent? Like, it's, it's all stuck together. It's all connected. Each of these figures, they have, they have a past. Um, every, every conversation in that story, it has a setting. Uh, that kind of idea, it's a coherent story. That's true of the scriptures also. Um, here, here are some, here's some interesting, here's some interesting things. Like, when you look at the scriptures, here I have the copy that I usually read from. This book is a story. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a story. Um, you could say it's one big story composed of many littler stories. Maybe sometimes like a TV series or something like that. It goes on for several years and the story builds, that kind of thing, eh? That's like what this is. Or some of those historical novels that you read where, where it actually builds from generation to generation. Some of those longer ones. I, I had a buddy that I lived with in Winnipeg that was really into those kinds of historical novels, eh? And um, basically that's what this book is. Except that it is a true story. It's a historical narrative. And like I said, it's like a, it's one big story, and it's also a string of stories uh, set together. If you actually take this and you ask yourself, how much of this is actually narrative? Like, how much of this is stories? Uh, over 50% is stories. So over 50% of this book is just narrative and stories. And then there are some other, other like, you could say genres of literature, and there are also, what would be some of the other genres of literature? Poetry, Poetry yep. A mystery? Hmm? Autobiography, okay. Prophecy would be another one. Yeah, two, two of the bigger ones, aside from narrative or story, is poetry and prophecy. And, um, but that's less than, yep, teaching and instruction. That's good. There's lots of that in there. There's, there's teaching, instruction, uh, there are laws. So, but that isn't that interesting that when you look at these different genres, like pro- poetry, prophecy, uh, practical instruction, all of those make up for actually less than half of what this book contains. Wow. That's, that's what this, it's just, it's incredible to think, what if there's a creator out there? And what if he wants to somehow contact the human race and communicate with us? What would he say? How would he do it? If you could just somehow, just like beam something through to us, would you believe it that he beamed a book through to us that's over, that's like over half of it is stories? That's interesting to me. That's interesting that that's how he'd communicate with us human beings. That that's how he'd want to make contact with us. Um, Even the elements that aren't story, uh, let's say uh, the poetic sections, like some of the poetic prayers in the book of Tehillim, Psalms, if you read one of those, every one of those has a story behind it. Because every one of those was written by somebody who was going through a real-life experience. Like, for instance, the, the Psalms of David. When you just read those and you don't know anything about David, I mean, yeah, they're pretty meaningful and you can make some of it your own. But when you realize this guy was on the run, he was a fugitive because his father-in-law hated him and was trying to kill him. It, some of those prayers all of a sudden become more meaningful. Or this is the prayer that David prayed when his son led a national rebellion against him. And everybody backstabbed him. The whole country backstabbed him after he worked so hard for him. All of a sudden that prayer becomes more meaningful because you know the story behind it. Or um, some of the prophets. You think about the prophet Jeremiah. If you just read those prophecies, it's like, 
I don't know, a bunch of stuff about Israel and Judah and uh, the Babylonians. And you read these prophecies and it, I don't know, like seriously, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you read it knowing the story that that the northern tribes had already been like decimated by the Assyrians and they were gone for 150 years and that there were only a couple tribes that were just clinging to survival in the south because they had been faithful to God and that the Babylonians were were looming on the horizon and that there was this this threat of them coming and wiping out the country. If you could imagine radical Islam today and a threat of wiping out Israel. Radical Babylon wiping out Israel. There was a story there and that's the story into which Jeremiah stepped and that was the story in which Jeremiah prophesied and Yahweh said things to his people through him, right? So can, can you hear, even with prophecy, the setting is a story. Even with poetry, the setting is a story. Real people, real life experiences, uh, that kind of thing. Um, here is something else that's interesting. You know how I've been talking about the concept of word of mouth? When something isn't written down, but you hear it, maybe someone else tells you, you see it on the news, you hear it on the radio, or maybe it's that kind of idea. Um, that's called word of mouth or oral learning, oral communication, right? When you look at a lot of this book, it was originally not written down. It was originally communicated orally. Um, and that includes things like the Psalms. David was out in the desert and he composed this prayer. My guess is he wasn't sitting there with his like his little Moleskine notebook, like composing beautiful poetry. I mean, this guy was on the run. His life was being threatened. He probably just composed it and then made, and, and put it to music so he wouldn't forget it. And then maybe later he wrote it down. Maybe 10 years or 20 years later when he actually got settled down and he had a kingdom and he had some time to write some books. You know, that, that kind of thing. So just think about the, po- the, the Psalms like that. Mm. That's true. Some of the Psalms are very long. But if you set things to music, have you ever noticed how much easier it is to remember them, eh? Yeah. So it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, a po- poetic poem. It was a song. And then it sticks in your head. Yeah, totally. Because it... Okay, do you guys want to know why? Because the two hemispheres of your brain, they synchronize when you hear a song. Because you hear lyrics, which engages one half of your brain, and you hear music, which engages the other half of your brain. So that's, that's a little freebie that I'll just throw in for you. That's totally... Um, doesn't really... Um, yeah, anyway, there you go. Um, or here's another example, the prophets. They, they would go and they would say, this is what Yahweh is saying, and they'd stand in the temple and they'd just shout it to all the people, probably over and over and over again throughout the course of a day, so everybody heard it. Um, so you just start to think about that. Or like I mentioned, the Torah or the Gospels. Much of that was communicated word of mouth. It was communicated orally, sometimes for decades, centuries, for like... Bunch of generations before it was written down, hey? So, I, I just, like, I love the Word of God. I, I so love the Scriptures. And so it's really cool to think about, how did we get this stuff? How was it originally told? You know, trying to get in the mindset of the people who originally heard it. And I don't know, maybe maybe we can get a certain vibe back that maybe we lost when we just think of this as a book that you read in a monotone voice. You know what I mean? So, that's something to think about. Um... Here's, here's, um, here's what I would see maybe as being a problem, uh, whether we be like in a church or a messianic synagogue or, or whatever. Sometimes we as believers, we, um, we, we skip the stories. We, we leave out all the juicy details and we just say, remember that, and then we kind of make our point. See, and, and you know what, that works if everybody in the room knows the stories, if they're all like literate types, eh? But we're a, we're a family of disciples, and we want to see a bunch of baby disciples. We want to see Yeshua giving us baby disciples. We want to we want to teach new believers, right? And here's the problem: if if we just reference, remember this story, and then we make our point, but we don't actually tell the story, you lose all those new people. 
and you make them feel like outsiders because they don't know the story. They're like, oh man, these people have been believers for 10 or 20 or 30 years and they've read the Bible so many times and I just don't. And then all of a sudden you feel like you're the outsider, eh? So I just think that's something to be aware of. Uh, whether it be me as a teacher talking, uh, whether it be us when we're midrashing, just talking about the scriptures, uh, whether it be any pastor preaching in his church, make sure you tell the story. Don't, don't kind of like just reference this story and skip all the juicy details just to make your point in your sermon. All right, pastor? All right, pastor? Oh, that's, you guys aren't pastors, but that's kind of the idea um, that, that I get out of that. So let's just, just, just as an action point, let's make sure we tell the stories like, and soup it up. Like, go, do a good job telling them, right? Because that's how they were originally communicated. And don't assume that everybody knows them already. So that, that's an action point for you. Um, I, have, I have a quote here uh, from a man named John Locke, philosopher. Wouldn't recommend you really get into John Locke. He lived several centuries ago. But this is an interesting, uh, this is an interesting thought from him. Um, have you, um, have you noticed that in your Bible, if you have a Bible, just open it up and have a look at it, you'll probably have lots and lots of little numbers. And some of them are at the beginning of a chunk, and then some of them are at the beginning of a sentence or paragraph. Right? You have chap, you have the whole Bible broken up into chapters and verses. And that's really good. That's like our GPS system so that we know where to go and how to be on the same page and stuff, right? But here's the interesting thing. For a really, really long time, those chapters and verses weren't in the scriptures. When, for example, when Paul wrote one of his letters, he didn't write it with chapter and verse. He just wrote the thing in one big schlock. That'd be a word, like, just boom. You just put it out there, right? Um, or, or, you know, when, when the stories in the book of Genesis were written down, they weren't written down as chapter and verse. And uh, it, we, someone came along in the last couple thousand years, and they inserted the chapters, and then they inserted the verses, and that's good. But sometimes it makes us do weird things with the Bible. It makes us like start to... Actually, I'll just read this quote from John Locke because I think he says it very well. Uh, he says, The scriptures are chopped and minced, and, as they are now printed, stand so broken and divided that not only the common people take the verses, usually, for distinct aphorisms, which is like a principle or a rule or something. Everyone say aphorism. <laughs> but even men of more advanced knowledge in reading them lose very much of the strength and force of the coherence and the light that depends on it. I'll read that again just because it's really, he's, he, he says that really well. The scriptures are chopped and minced and as they are now printed stand so broken and divided that not only the common people take the verses usually for distinct aphorisms but even men of more advanced knowledge in reading them lose very much of the strength and force of the coherence and the light that depends on it. So, okay, I'm, I'm sure we've all been to church services where, you know, you have the singing time, and the kids are usually in for that part, and then before the sermon starts, um, the kids are usually called to the front, and, and someone, like, gives kind of a mini-sermon. They tell a, a story, or maybe they used an ob, use an object lesson, or something like that. I, I love that. I love that part, personally. Uh, Lois, I think you do that quite often. Um, from from my understanding, and it sounds like you do a really good job of it, and that's often what you do. You tell a story, or you use an object lesson. Um, here's here's an interesting little thing to consider. Which do most people pay closer attention to? To like the little children's blurb or to the sermon? If you were if you were to like pull people at the door and say, what was the main point of the sermon? 
what can you remember, and then pull them and say, what was the main point of the kids' blurb, and what can you remember, I would probably be embarrassed to say, I probably remember the kids' stuff better. I don't know. Have any of you guys experienced that ever? That, that's why that's why we don't have a kids blurb here because I because I because I would be embarrassed because you would you'd remember the kids blurb and you wouldn't remember what I say. No, just joking. Yeah. <laughs> I will be the kids blurb. Okay, but let me ask you. Um, why is that? Why do people remember the kids blurb better than the sermon? I think one because they're um, it's it's like similar to a parable. Whether it's an object lesson, an item right there, or someone brings a story in their own experience, and then they're teaching a truth by either a visual aid or, or a story or yeah. mm-hmm. So there's that connection. Hmm. So they're using visual aids, and what was the other thing? Yeah, they're telling stories, right? Often from their own experiences, or that kids can relate to. And they tell usually a whole story, right? Or they just tell the story and make it dynamic mm-hmm. instead of. Yeah, and so yeah, it's simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, the three things I thought of were it's short, because we usually have short attention spans as human beings, including me. Um, simple language is used. They don't use words like aphorisms. <laughs> and it's a story. It's coherent. Everything is kind of one one nice little package, eh? Easy to remember, Yeah. Um, I'm going to read you guys a couple pages from a book, and we're going to learn some things from Sesame Street. Would that be okay? Because Sesame Street is really smart. I learned a lot of things from Sesame Street growing up, like how to share, and what the letter Q says. Quentin had a quota. He kept it on a string. And every time he tossed it, the quota would start to sing. Qua, 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 qua. Like, I remember all this stuff from Sesame Street, right? And so I... Uh, and it's not a mistake that Sesame Street was so successful in engaging kids. Um, I'll just I'll just read you guys a couple of pages. This is a book called The Tipping Point by uh, a really smart guy named Malcolm Gladwell. In this book, he he studies all of these like social movements and things that go viral, um, even like literal viruses. And he and, and very often something will kind of be plugging along, and all of a sudden it'll just go boom, and it'll go big. Um, maybe it's like even a brand of uh, shoes or like a sickness, like I mentioned, or some social movement. And so he studies these in this book and he says, what is, it, what is that tipping point that all of a sudden makes something go viral? And I, I really find things like this fascinating because I want Yeshua to go viral. I want the whole following Yeshua thing to, to go big, eh, in NPA. And so I think about this stuff. So I'm going to read you a little section here. He says, Sesame Street is best known for the creative geniuses it attracted. People like Jim Henson and Joe Raposo and Frank Oz, who intuitively grasped what it takes to get through to children. They were television's answer to Beatrix Potter or L. Frank Baum. Does anyone know who L. Frank Baum was? That was before my time. I'm a Sesame Street kid. Anyway, or Dr. Seuss. But it is a mistake to think of Sesame Street as a project conceived in a flash of insight. What made the show unusual, in fact, was the extent to which it was exactly the opposite of that, the extent to which the final product was deliberately and painstakingly engineered. Sesame Street was built around a single breakthrough insight that if you can hold the attention of children, you can educate them. This may seem obvious, but it isn't. Many critics of television to this day argue that what's dangerous about TV is that it is addictive, that children and even adults watch it like zombies, 
According to this view, it's the formal features of television. Violence, bright lights, loud and funny noises, quick editing cuts, zooming in and out, exaggerated action, and all the other things we associate with commercial TV that hold our attention. In other words, we don't have to understand what we're looking at or absorb what we're seeing in order to keep watching. That's what many people mean when they say that television is passive. We watch when we're stimulated by all the whizzes and bangs of the medium, and we look away or turn the channel when we're bored. What the pioneering television researchers of the 1960s and 1970s, in particular Daniel Anderson at the University of Massachusetts, began to realize, however, is that this isn't how preschoolers watch TV at all. Hey, you, you, you spend a lot of time with preschoolers. You'll have to tell, tell us at the end of this is true, Shuri. Quote, The idea was that kids would sit, stare at the screen, and zone out, said Elizabeth Lorch, a psychologist at Amherst College. But once we began to look carefully at what children were doing, we found out that short looks were actually more common. There was much more variation. Children didn't just sit and stare. They could divide their attention between a couple of different activities. And they weren't being random. There were predictable influences on what made them look back at the screen. And these were not trivial things, not just flash and dash. Lorch, for instance, once re-edited an episode of Sesame Street so that certain key scenes of some of the sketches were out of order. If kids were only interested in flash and dash, that shouldn't have made a difference. The show, after all, still had songs and Muppets and bright colors and action and all the things that make Sesame Street so wonderful. But it did make a difference. The kids stopped watching. If they couldn't make sense of what they were looking at, they weren't going to look at it. In another experiment, Lorch and Dan Anderson showed two groups of five-year-olds an episode of Sesame Street. Two groups. The kids in the second group, however, were put in a room with lots of very attractive toys on the floor. As you would expect, the kids in the room without the toys watched the show about 87% of the time, while the kids with the toys watched only about 47% of the time. Kids are distracted by toys. But when they tested the two groups to see how much of the show the children remembered and understood, the scores were exactly the same. This result stunned the two researchers. Kids, they realized, were a great deal more sophisticated in the way they watched than had been imagined. So did you guys catch that? I just want to go over that, because that's kind of the key, the key study there. So they had two groups of kids in two rooms. One of them had attractive toys, one had no toys. The group with the attractive toys watched how much of the time? No, with the toys, 47. And the kids with, without the toys watched how much of the time? 87%, yeah, right. Okay, and then when they afterwards, when they asked them some questions to see how much they caught or were watching, what, what did they discover? Yeah, the scores were exactly the same. That floored me, quite frankly, to hear that. Because what that, okay, just on the side note, what that told me about my daughter is even when I don't think she's watching, she's watching. And even when I don't think she's learning, like right now, she actually is. And guess what? Yeah, and guess what? We're all like that. So if you're in a room and some guy's sitting there like playing on his phone or fiddling, he's still learning. In fact, he might be catching more than you because you're busy being distracted by him. So there's a thought for you. Anyway, um, quote, We were led to the conclusion, they wrote, that the five-year-olds in the toy gr toys group were attending quite strategically, distributing their attention between toy play and viewing so that they looked at what, for them, were the most informative parts of the program. This strategy was so effective that the children could gain no more from increased attention. 
Isn't that crazy? They could have been like, put that toy down, kid. I want you to keep your eyes on that screen the whole time so you'll learn. And they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have learned anything more. They wouldn't have, you know, all the increased intention wouldn't have helped. So, he finishes his thought here. If you take these two studies together, the toy study and the editing study, you realize, you reach quite a radical conclusion about children and television. Kids don't watch when they're stimulated and look away when they're bored. They watch when they understand and look away when they're confused. So it's not about entertaining people and getting all the flash and dash, to use his phrase, that will keep their attention. It's talking on a level that they understand. And that applies whether you're in a one-on-one conversation, uh, whether you're midrashing over the scriptures in a group, uh, whether you're a pastor preaching. It's not the entertainment that's going to engage people. It's when they understand what you're talking about. So that's, um, that's some wisdom from Sesame Street for us uh, along those lines. Here's, a, here's the last thing for you that will hopefully kind of get you thinking about this. Um, in 2007, on March 14th, a lady named Kathy Lynn Grossman published a report in USA Today. It was entitled, Americans Get an F in Religion. And uh, here, here are two statistics from that report. You can look up the rest of it online if you want. Um, 60% of Americans, and that probably means North Americans in general, can't list five of the Ten Commandments. Right? So if we had those little blue people kind of lined up here today, you have ten little blue people, and that represent everyone in North America. Five of those won't be able to list... Oh, sorry. Six of those won't be able to list five of the Ten Commandments. That's the first statistic for you. Uh, second statistic, 50% of high school seniors thought Sodom and Gomorrah were married. Yeah, that's that's crazy though. That like if you were to let's say go to Carlton and you got that those same statistics, half of those kids would think Sodom and Gomorrah were married. It's like that's the level of like unfamiliarity that people have with the Word of God, with the history of Israel, with the with the with with the whole Bible. And, you know, maybe you know it'd be easy to quote the statistics and just be like, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, we're becoming so secularized. Oh, we better just build our bunkers and hunch down, hunker down and just wait for Jesus to come back and get us out of this pagan culture. You know, people can react like that, and sometimes people do, but I don't think that's the right response. I think it's just one of those things where we say, okay, this is the world we live in. We don't always have to send our missionaries halfway around the world to reach pagan cultures, because you have a pagan culture down the street. Maybe you're a missionary right now. Maybe we need to begin thinking like missionaries here, just like missionaries train to go around the world. They learn a new language. They dress like the people they're trying to reach. They think about, how can I relate the good news of Yeshua to these people on a level that they'll get and speak their language? And guess what? Missionaries do that halfway around the world, but we often don't do that here in North America. So anyway, that's just a little side blurb for the fact that we are on mission here in PA, just as much as... Your parents were on mission in the Philippines, um, whenever that was. So, what, what I would say, like, when you, when you kind of connect the dots here, when you look at this study, people listen when they understand, and when they don't get it, their attention goes elsewhere. When you connect the dots with that, and these statistics about how people just don't, they don't know the word of God, what I would, what I would suspect is that it's not so much that people have rejected biblical values and truth, I think it's just that they haven't understood them. I think it's just that they have never heard them in a way that makes sense. That people have never told them, like, in a coherent way. 
You know, coherent is when things are all, they're, they're, they're connected. It's like a story and it makes sense. Incoherent is when it's like, verse over here, verse over there, someone alludes to a story, and I just don't have a clue what's going on. This is way over my head. And then I lose my attention, and let's see what's going on on Facebook. Right? And I, frankly, I think that's what hap- that's happened to our generation. So, um, there's, there, I don't know, like I, I would say probably just one action point, this is my main point from these statistics and from some of these things that we're thinking about, is just let's make sure that we talk on a level that anybody can understand and let's, let's, like, let's realize that the scriptures are a story, that the scriptures are a series of stories and let's learn to tell those stories. Reading them is good, but let's learn to always also tell those stories word of mouth in language that anybody will be able to understand. Um, that is that is a journey that I'm on right now. Um, and I've been having a lot of fun with it, quite frankly. And uh, hopefully that's a journey that we as a community are on. And I, I invite each of you as individuals to, to, to go on that journey also. And, you know, it might take some changing. It might take some learning. It might be a little uncomfortable because learning new things is always uncomfortable. And it's always challenging. But hey, you know, we're, we're a group and maybe we can uh, figure out how to do that together. And I'm not saying, let's not read the Bible. I'm not saying, let's not do what we're doing. But I'm saying, let's, let's, ask, let's be asking these questions and being sensitive, be sensitive to this. Actually, I will say one thing. Um, if you often look at how a Bible study or a sermon is done in, in a traditional church setting, um, very often you kind of have that, that Frankenstein thing where you kind of chop a verse here, take, take another bit here, and then you all kind of piece it together and you get this Frankenstein thing that just is kind of scary. And not very inviting, eh? Um, sometimes you have it. Often, you know, you can have, we can have that in the messianic world too. But I think something that's really good that I'm encouraged by is very often people, like messianic kind of people, they don't just snip a verse here and take a verse there. Um, they say, let's read together. And so they get together in a group and they just read a chapter. Or they read several chapters in a row. And guess what? That's coherent. And very often that's a story. And, and, and even who's someone who isn't, like, who is more non-literate, who wouldn't read a book on their own, when you, when you sit in a group, someone else is reading and you can just sit there and hear it. And that's the way half of the people in our culture learn. So anyway, I just want to see a huge thumbs up because I think that's something we're doing really really right in the Messianic, in the messianic community. And I, I hope that we continue to grow in that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham. And thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.